Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn uh, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our ultimate series. We only have a couple more chapters left or actually just a couple more uh, parts left as we cover. We'll cover chapter 4. But we're going to cover chapter 3 today, the first 17 verses. And as you're turning to that, I want to remind us once again, if you turn to our church app, all the notes are there that you can fill in and save it and use it later on as you do your own study. Or if God sends you to another place, another part of the world that you can use some of the materials and make into Bible studies. And we're giving you authority to do that because everything's from the Bible. So praise the Lord. I want to start off and just kind of start off with a question that I want you to think about. I'm wondering how many of you have ever been in a situation where you heard some Christian jargon, but you really didn't know what they were talking about. Now, don't raise your hand, and I'm looking around, and I'm guessing I should ask the question the other way. How many of you have used Christian jargon because you grew up in the church, and you finally realized when you looked at that person with this confused look down on their face that they don't have any clue what you're talking about? Now, I would say all of us, to some extent, who have been brought up in the church or have been in the church, even myself as a pastor, it is so easy to use language, Christian language, that an average person who, who's not churched, who might be a, a pre-Christian, uh, they don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes I have to always remind myself, depending on the audience that I'm with or the person that I'm meeting up with, sometimes they're, they're not believers, and so some of the words that I use, some of the things that I try to communicate, I have to do it in such a way that they will be able to understand because they will not understand church words. But, you know, it's amazing. So many Christians like you and I are so clueless to how irrelevant we are to the world. Uh, as many of you guys know, I, I, I went to the States for the GLT conference, our global leadership team conference our summit with all the pastors from the GLT and all our HMCC churches and after our, my time in Ann Arbor Michigan I had an opportunity to stop by Chicago my hometown where I grew up um, for about a couple days I, I, I wanted to see my parents who my mom celebrated her 80th birthday uh, yesterday and uh, my dad is 83 so they're getting up in age and then I also wanted to visit uh, my second son who's in Illinois uh, at Wheaton College. And so I wanted to at least say hi to him as I said hi to my first son at the University of Michigan. So here I am driving from Ann Arbor to Chicago. And as I was passing Indiana, you, you, you don't know anything about, but those of you who have no clue where things are, it's okay. Uh, Michigan and then there's uh, Indiana and there's Illinois. So I'm going through three states. And as I was passing through Indiana and just about to approach the southern part of Chicago near South Side, I come across from, from the corner of my eye, I see this white van uh, with this one logo. And I said, what is that? And I looked a little bit closely. And I will confess, I was tempted to take a picture as I was driving, but I decided not to. But as I was driving by, I saw this van and I saw this logo. And I want to show you this logo. It's the mountain of fire and miracles ministries and it wasn't just this logo that was like pasted hugely or painted onto this i mean the whole word mountain of fire was all over the whole van 
And as I was driving, I realized, oh, uh, this, they're, you know, Christians. I don't know what kind, but they're, they're Christians. And, and as I was driving, I, I just wanted, you know, you know how it is. Like when there's a bad drive, you want to see who they are and things. I just wanted to see who they were. So I kind of drove and I kind of looked really quickly. And, the, you know, we, we caught each other's eye because I was trying to, like, uh, driving like right by them. And I didn't wave or anything. I just kind of looked at them and I kept on driving. And then I got home to my parents' place and I thought to myself, I got to look them up. Because I have no idea what kind of church it is. And so I typed up their ministry. And as soon as I typed it up, I go, oh, okay. I should have known just by the name. Like, Mountain of Fire. So try to imagine that you're a pre-Christian, you're, you're not a believer, and you invite them for Easter and say, would you want to come to our church called the Mountain of Fire and Miracles Ministry? And I'm realizing, as a person who might not be churched, you will probably be like, Mountain of what? And all these thoughts will go through your mind. And so, as I was thinking about this, I said to myself, Wow, maybe the pastor drank too much coffee that morning when he was trying to name the church. He was all wired up, a mountain of fire, and he decided to name the church that. I, I don't know why he did that, but like I said, I am not trying to disparage them in any way. I'm just kind of thinking to myself, would any pre-Christian would know what a mountain of fire and, well, miracles, yes, ministries, is all about and as I was kind of thinking about this uh, I came across this video that I think it's going to be relevant relevant for us but before I show it I want to apologize ahead of time to those of you who will be offended after watching the video you are going to get offended but only certain types of people so I won't tell you what type yet but if you get offended then I'll explain later in my message why you're getting offended but uh, these are two guys who always likes to find different things about Christianity that they found really funny and within the Christian subculture. And so what they're trying to do is trying to show how Christians have so many stuff that they say that it's ridiculous. If, if you don't, if you don't really know what they're saying. And so they put a little bit of a montage of all the little phrases and all the little words that we use so often. And there was one word in there. I got a little bit offended, but I'm like, okay, we could redeem it somehow. So let's watch this together. I can't believe they mentioned Ignite. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have been guilty of any of those words. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Some words, it's fine. We can say it. We just have to explain it. Amen. We just have to explain it so they understand what, what it means. But this is what I'm trying to say here. It's amazing how many of us in this room we like to equate holiness by the way we talk, by the things that we do. And I think this is what I'm trying to address this morning. Is that oftentimes we as human beings, we measure people's relationship with God or their holiness by their actions. And on one hand, yes. A lot of times who we are it translates into our actions. But as many of you know, there are many of us who can 
do all the external things, but our hearts are all in the wrong place. And that's why we have a lot of Pharisees in the church. A lot of self-righteous people in the church. And it comes in very subtle ways where we think to ourselves, we're better than that person or we're better than that. Or we think to ourselves, oh, I'm a Christian, so I should know better. And what begins to happen is you create this world around you where it's almost like this bubble where you're isolated. And you think to yourself that you're, you're doing really okay because you're going to all the meetings. You're sending in your soap, your Bible reading to other people. You're, you're praying. You're doing a LCG, a life change group, which is accountability group. You're doing all these things. And after a while, you think you're doing okay. But deep inside all of our hearts, we could be rotting away. And what fuels that even more is that people around you begin to expect things of you. Oh, that person's a leader. Oh, that person's really committed. Oh, look at that person. Look at what they do. And so instead of coming out honestly and vulnerably and say, I'm not that. My heart is still wicked. I still desire things that I should not desire. I still do things that I'm ashamed of. What we end up doing is we end up hiding. And what that creates is a very dangerous environment that will hinder you from experiencing God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's grace, which is the gospel. And until we are convinced that without the gospel, we cannot do anything, and we not just know it in our heads, but we believe it in our hearts, that we're not going to grow not only in our relationship with Christ, but we're not going to grow in humility, which I believe is one of the greatest markers of a person walking closely with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Andrew Murray said in his book, Humility. He writes this, The greatest test of whether the holiness we profess to seek or to attain is truth and life will be whether it produces an increasing humility in us in man or woman humility is the one thing needed to allow God's holiness to dwell in him and shine through him the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is a lack of humility the holiest will be the humblest what a powerful word so often in the church we like to pride ourselves that we don't do those kind of things or we engage in these kind of things to make us love Jesus more. And oftentimes it fools us because it's all external behavior, things that we do. But if you're not being humble and you're not growing in humility, that is all religious exercise to uplift yourself. And that is a self-made religion that will lead to death, a spiritual death. Anybody that I've met who are self-righteous, pharisaic, there is no joy. Just hang out with them a little bit. They complain about everything. They judge everyone in every single situation. But hang out with people who are humble, who understand the grace of God in their lives. That they don't deserve anything. What they do deserve is death, the wrath of God upon their lives. But God delivered them by sending Jesus Christ 
as Savior and Lord. And upon receiving that message and Jesus Christ as their Savior, they realize that there's nothing they have done to earn it or to deserve it. And when they begin to comprehend the gospel message in such a deep and powerful way, just the humility will just exude out of their lives. And those are the people you want to hang out with. Because they're, they're just fun. Because they don't take themselves seriously. They, they know who they are. They're not jealous. They don't compare with other people. Because they know who they are in Christ. They know their value. They know their significance. Because it's of Jesus Christ. I'm praying that in our church, that we will have people growing in holiness. But growing in holiness, the clear marker is that we're humble people because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me give us the one thing for us to ponder upon as we expound on these 17 verses. The one thing is simply this. Living with God's holiness starts with knowing God's goodness. For us to start living with God's holiness in our lives, we have to start from the beginning, which is knowing and understanding, comprehending the goodness of God. And out of that, that we will desire to be holy. Out of that, that we will desire to love people and to serve people and reach the nations. So there are two things that I want us to remember about how living with God's holiness starts with knowing God's goodness. The first thing that I'm going to highlight for us is that God's goodness guides us that God's goodness guides us to the holiness of God let me read verse one I'm going to start off with this first verse there's a lot in here so this is what it says in verse one if you have a bible you could read on with read with me or if you don't you could read on with somebody next to you it says this if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God let me pause and I need to expound this this is important to establish what he's apostle Paul is mentioning throughout this whole chapter the apostle Paul ties in everything that he has been mentioning in the previous sections in chapter one and chapter two earlier if you remember apostle Paul mentions that we have died and we're raised with Christ in baptism Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins." Just in these two verses earlier, as we talked about last week, as Pastor Bo mentioned, this is the gospel message. What he says is we have been buried with Christ. We have died to ourselves. We have died to our selfishness. We are saying, God, my sins have crucified your son, Jesus Christ. So I have, as Christ died, so I now die with him. And then it says we have been raised to new life. As Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, in the same way, the spiritual work of God is that as we have died with Christ, now he has given us new life in him. So he's tying in this gospel message to what he just talked about in verse 1. Even when you look a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 20, 
he's trying to exhort the believers not to follow the worldly philosophies. We talked about that last week. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, in the NIV says this, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it? Do you submit to its rules? So what he's saying is this, even the things of the worldly philosophy, you've died to that because you've been buried with Christ. Therefore, here's Paul, just even in this first verse, he's arguing that if you understand this gospel message, the goodness of God, which was demonstrated by Jesus Christ coming and dying and raising to life, it should motivate us to live differently. There is no other motivation for us to try to be holy and live a life that is different from the world than this one gospel message where Jesus Christ came, died for our sins, and rose again from the dead to give us new life. That is the goodness of God demonstrated through the cross and the resurrection. And the things that we seek after must be different from those who have not experienced the gospel. Listen to the message translation of verse 1. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. All our pursuits, all the things that we aspire after, it is no longer for ourselves. This is the reason why so many of us are running around in circles and getting confused and dizzy and our lives are a mess, spinning out of control. Because every single decision that you're making, everything that you are pursuing after and you're inspiring after, is all for you. But pastor, it's not just for me, it's my future family. And, but it's also, it's you. How do you even know you're going to have a future family? Lord, we pray that you will. But how do you know? You're not in control of your life. If we were to examine our lives and see what is it that we pursue after, what we seek after, would it really reflect his kingdom? Like, why are you studying? Why are you trying so hard to get that GPA? Why are you pursuing that internship? Why are you doing that exchange? Why are you working so many OTs? Why are you pursuing after that promotion? Now, none of these things in and of themselves are wrong. You need to understand that they're good things. Everything that God has given, everything that God has made, they're good. But the question is, why are you pursuing it? That shows us where our hearts are. Seeking after a relationship, there's nothing wrong with it. But why are you? Because if your satisfaction is not found in Christ and you think if you find somebody, you will find it. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be solely, so badly disappointed. And we have a bunch of people who could testify it will never fully satisfy you. The job, wait until you get it. You, everything that you expected, but then it will not be. And after two months, you're going to start looking for another job. 
Like how many times does it require for you to go through things to realize nothing in this world will fully satisfy me apart from Jesus Christ? I don't know how many times. It took me many times to come to the lowest point of my life to finally realize that. Some of you, you're not even halfway there. You need to go lower. That's why some of you need to experience failure. This is why some of you need to experience loneliness and emptiness for you to come to the realization only Jesus Christ can fill my heart. So this is how he starts chapter 3. And then he mentions two specific things about allowing this goodness, the gospel, to guide us in living this kind of mindset with that mind seeking after the things of heaven. The first thing that he mentions is you got to pay attention to what you focus on. That's the first thing he mentions. Let's go ahead and read verse 2 to 4. As he continues, he says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What Apostle Paul is saying is, you got to pay attention to what you're focused on, because that will tell you what it is that you're pursuing after. I want you to look at the word set in verse 2. That word is very similar to what the word seek in verse 1. Look back at verse 1. So other translations of verse 1, I'm going to go back to verse 1. The New Living Translation says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. The NIV says, set your hearts on things above. But in the ESV, it says seek. But they're the same word when you study it. Why is this important? Because the word set, as you see it in verse 2, and it's also it's in verse 1, but translated as seek. The word set means to seek or strive for earnestly. So both in verse 1 and in verse 2 has this connotation of striving. You're, you're, you're earnestly seeking. Or you're earnestly setting yourself on something. Now, why is this important? Well, this means that a continuous and ongoing effort is required if you want to have this kind of focus in our lives. Because it does not come automatically. Man, if this Christian life just came automatically after we said yes to Jesus... We'll all be good. How many people have received Christ? Or some of you who have seen people receive Christ. And within the first couple months, they're excited. But then slowly, just various times throughout the months and the years, they slowly drift away. Are they saved? Who knows? As I talked about before, only God knows. But if they are saved, they'll come back. Like, if Christian life, after you said, yes, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, if that was it, then we will all be doing well right now. But as you know, just because you say that prayer, 
You will still be tempted. You will still stray because there's so many things coming at you and you're fighting your own heart. That's why Paul says, set your minds on things above. That's why he says, set your heart on the things above. Why? Because it is a continual effort in response to what Christ has done for us. So let me put it this way. In essence, what, we're, what we think about or concentrate on will dictate how we live our lives. So just think about that statement. What you think about or what you concentrate on will dictate how you live your life. Let me give you some examples. When we think about and focus on being secure, because we all want security, financial security, health Security in some ways to be healthy, which is nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that's what we think about all the time and that's what we focus on, then you are going to be ruled by your fears and you will not take risk. Are you with me? Does that make sense? The more you think about and concentrate on safety and security as your ultimate pursuit, you will never take any risk. Never. But Christian life is about taking risk. Amen? Just look at the Bible. Look at the gospel. How many times Jesus constantly invited his disciples to take the risk? It was some risky things. And I realize that some of us are so fearful of certain things. And it shows and it reveals what you're focused on and what you're concentrating on. Let me give you some more examples. When we think about and focus on being accepted by people. Some of you, this is one of your, you you think about this all the time. It consumes you. Then you will be so concerned about other people's opinion of you. Are you with me? Does that make sense? If you are focused and concentrated on what being accepted by people, then you will then be so concerned about people's opinion of you. But if you say, I don't care if people accept me or not. I just know that I'm accepted by Jesus Christ. And he showed it to it on the cross. Then you can say and do things and not in fear of people and what they think about you. Let me give you another one. When you think about and focus on being successful. Once again, there's nothing wrong with being successful. But if that's what you think about and focus on all the time then you will get more obsessed with your future. So that's why whenever I counsel people, I see that they're so obsessed with their future. They're so like consumed with their future. I'm like, huh, what is it that they're focusing on? This is why when you make a decision, you have to ask yourself, what am I focused on? Am I thinking about eternal things or temporal things? I think this will help us to assess some of the fears and ambitions and make sure that we're consistent with heavenly and kingdom-minded things. So can I just challenge us? Some of you have to make some decisions in the near future. Maybe even tomorrow or even tonight. Is it kingdom-advancing? Is it really about Jesus? Is it really about his mission? Or is it really about you? 
And the more you make it about you, the more frustrated you will become. Trust me. Not only from all the hours of counseling, but even from my own life. The more you make it about you, the more anxiety-ridden, the more anxious, the more fearful, because it's all about you. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it says what? But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I like the message translation of that. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God's provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all that your life or your everyday human concerns will be met. See, so many of us, we're focused on the wrong things. I don't know if some of you ever felt like, oh, am I missing out? Oh, I don't want to miss out. But when you're in the presence of God, you're focused on the things of God, the realities of God. God's provisions, God's initiatives, everything that he's doing about the kingdom. Then you don't have to worry about those things. He's going to add it on to you. Having this kind of focus and eternal perspective requires constant reminders about God's goodness and how we can be trusted and how he can be trusted in the situations of our lives. Listen to verse 2 in a different translation. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. No wonder Paul even says this to the people of Corinth. He says to fix their focus towards the things that are unseen or eternal things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 in the NIV says this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Like, are you looking at things in front of you and it consumes you? You're concentrated on that, you're focused on that. They're all temporal things. What would happen in your life if you were focused on eternal things? I'm wondering if your life will be so much different. Then in verse 3 and 4, as we have read, Paul mentions that we are able to set our minds and hearts on eternal things because our life is now hidden in Christ, which one day will be revealed in glory. So I hope you're following along. That the goodness of God, the gospel message should guide us in how we live our lives. And one of the ways is to pay attention to what we are focused on. Another thing he mentions is pay attention to what you feed on. Look at verse 5 through 11. I'm going to read this next whole section here. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once were walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In this next section, Paul is using this imagery of putting something to death. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. When you look at this, he specifically mentions things from their earthly or human nature, which the wrath of God is about to come. But then in verse 7, you will notice Paul reminds them that before coming to know Christ, you were guided by these earthly desires, the earthly nature, the human nature. This was your former way of life. This is how you used to live your life. I don't care if you've been to church. There are a lot of people who go to church that live just like the world. What he's saying, before you fully understood the goodness of God through the gospel, this is how you lived. And that's why it's interesting that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, listen to what Paul says, even as he was talking to the people of Ephesus, because in Ephesus, it was as worldly as you can get. They were worshiping sex gods and doing all these things and idol worship. So he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, you were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. Here's Paul telling even the people of Ephesus, as he's telling the people of Colossae, to put to death, put off your old self. Once again, in verse 8 and 9, Paul says that we must put them all away. This idea of putting off old, dirty clothes and putting on new ones. Now, I I don't want to take a poll, but I'm just going to ask, how many of you take a shower at night? Okay, don't raise your hand. You might be able to tell who they are just this morning, you know. Some people take a shower at night and the morning. When we were in Indonesia, our family, we took three showers, morning, afternoon, and then in the evening. Because you just sweat. Praise God that Pastor Andrew is called to Indonesia. And as you know that feeling after you had a long day and your clothes are all grimy and stuff and then you take it off and then you take a shower, how does that feel? Like, it, if, if I were to ask you, like, what word would come out of your mouth? All of us would be like, ah. You know that feeling. That is the same imagery Paul is using. It's like, ah. Like, this is how we used to live. It left us empty, made us more anxious. And he says, put that off. And it's literally taking off the dirty clothes. And now being in Christ, it's like this feeling of, ah. That's why in the NIV says, but now you must rid yourself of all such things or such things as these. Message translated, but you know better now. So make sure it's all gone for good. 
You know what that feels like when you have dirty clothes and your body is all grimy and sweaty. But you come out and you know this feeling now. So as you know this feeling now as being a follower of Jesus Christ, you also remember the life you used to live. And you don't want to go back. But let's be honest. Even though these were things from our former way of life, we still struggle with some of these things. You know, believers who don't think some things are too bad, like swearing or maybe lying. And some are like, oh, that's not that bad. And others of us, we know certain things, other things are bad, and we still struggle with it. Pornography, impurity, anger. And I think one of the major reasons why some of us struggle so much with disappointment and even disillusionment in our Christian life, listen to me carefully, is because I just don't think you have a healthy perspective of yourself. Some of us, we wonder why we still struggle with some of these things when we are now a Christ follower. Just look at that list that he mentions in 5 through 8. Look, look at all those stuff. Malice. Some of you still speak poorly of people. Some of you are biggest gossipers. You speak negatively of others, even our church and other things, other leaders. Let's just be honest. We struggle with some of these things. Just because we become a Christian, it's not like all these things are now gone. And something that I try to encourage people with is this. You have to remember that while we are living on this side of eternity, that we will continue to struggle with these things. Therefore, it is not an issue of if we struggle, but when we struggle. Because we will. I think this is why we have to understand from the perspective of feeding our spirit nature versus feeding our flesh nature. Or if you want to look at it from a different angle, it's feeding our spirit nature and starving our flesh nature. Whichever appetite that you feed, then we will find an opportunity to continue to satisfy it once again you don't have to raise your hand how many of you remember the odf and we did a social media fast right now some of you thought you were going to die you'd rather just starve yourself you thought you were going to die but here you are you didn't die you're still alive it was interesting because some of these people have never fasted or withdrew from social media. So for them to do it for two weeks, they were like, wow, pastor, it was like, it was hard in the beginning, but it was so good. Thank you for telling us to log out because it was just out of habit. You know, oh, oh, fasting, okay. Like how many times when you're on the empty, oh yeah, fasting. So for two weeks, you starved that side of you that craved for whatever reason, there's a lot of reasons for social media. And you know, research are showing, research, different studies are showing that people get a, 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 like almost like a cocaine hit on the frontal cortex 
Every single like that they receive. That's why these kids who are like tweenies, like 9, 10, their brains haven't developed yet, but we're feeding them with crack cocaine in the form of social media or other things, and their brains are not developed to take all that. That's why we see more mental health issues than ever before in any generation. And I say this with some level of humility and realizing and with some compassion. Some of you in this room struggle with mental health. And we want to do everything to try to help you take those steps. But part of it is realizing what's going on. And some of you, you're feeding that thing that continues to make you go through that downward spiral, even leading to depression. That's why we are for medicine, so that you can neutralize, at least think straight, and then start making wise decisions from there. Because if you're at a point where your, your whole mental capacity has been affected by the things that you have been brought up with, of course you're not going to be able to think straight. And I think it's a concern. We need to not only be in prayer, but we need to find good resources to help people. Some of them are in your life group. Some of you right now, you're sitting there, you're struggling with it. But I want you to understand that the next generation, we're going to see an increase of mental health issues. Because here are these 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids who are constantly getting this high through all the electronical things. And their brains are not developed enough. As a psych major, I'm telling you, their brains are not developed enough. To take all the stimulus. So different neurons are being, pathways are being made that should not be made. And so some of us, we're here as trying to be a good Christian. We're trying to live a good life. And guess what? You're failing miserably. That's why you get discouraged and almost disillusioned to say, I don't even think this Christianity works. Can I just say this? It is not just about fasting from something. I want to tell you right now, this is the key. When it comes to issues with sin, we have to see our attitude towards sin. That's where we have to address it. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. This is, this is dead on. Listen to this. He says this. Our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sin grieved the heart of God. We cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin, chiefly because we are success-oriented, a.k.a. living in Asia all your life and doing Kumon and everything else. That is what he's talking about. 4.0 GPAs, winning all the musical awards, all the sports awards, everything. You are a high achiever. You are a perfectionist. So what he's saying is when it comes to the issue of sin... It is so self-centered about us rather than on God. Because we struggle with the fact that we cannot overcome this. We have overcome all this other stuff. I got straight A's. I've won that award. I tried hard and I was able to do this. And so you get discouraged. 
You get disappointed. Even when a leader or somebody says anything that might be constructive to help you, you take that, oh my God, I suck. It's all about you. No wonder you continue to struggle. No wonder you keep on going through the downward spiral and you, you ne we never change. He says, we cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin chiefly because we are success oriented, not because we know that it is offensive to God. If every single one of us in this room knew that every single time that we sin, we look at the cross and we see Jesus hanging there and bleeding and suffering because that is what our sin does to God. It breaks the heart of God. When we can see it and feel it, don't make it about us. Make it all about God. His heart is breaking. He's grieving. Then I'm wondering if we would hate sin a little bit more. I'm wondering if we would want to stop doing certain things. Not because it's about our success and how good we are. It breaks the heart of God. And because God has been so good to us. We don't want to keep on hurting him. We want to love him. Still in our weakness, still struggling with these things that he listed. Anger, malice, slander, all the stuff. Impurities. Sexual immorality. All these things, even though we still struggle with these things now. Every time as we stumble and fall, instead of looking at ourselves, we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is the reason why you die. You are so good. I don't deserve this. But you say that I am loved. I am forgiven. Do you know what that does to your heart? It will never make you proud. It will never make you self-righteous. In fact, it will break you. It will humble you. That you don't deserve anything. What you deserve is death. You don't deserve anything good. But God gave his goodness to us. That's why in verse 10, Paul mentions to put on the new self and the idea of how it's going to be renewed in the knowledge of God. It's this constant renewing and refreshing, knowing the goodness of God to overcome the sin in our lives. This process, this constant process of reshaping us, we can only get it as we get to know more of God and as we become more like Jesus. How about us? What do you feed your minds with on a regular basis? Are some of those things helping you or hindering you in your walk with God? What you are constantly focused on is what will consume you. So what, what, what are you focused on? May God's goodness, the gospel, guide us and lead us to holiness. Second point is a little bit shorter. Listen to what it says. God's goodness not only guides us, but God's goodness is going to govern us. Now, as Paul just addressed the importance of putting off our old self, he now encourages the believers to put on traits that reflect our relationship with Christ. Let me mention two quick things. First of all, he talks about love with grace. Look at verse 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so that you must forgive. And verse 14. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul reminds the believers that they were chosen, they were holy, and they were beloved by God. Once again, this is the gospel that comes out of God's goodness. Due to this goodness, we are to put on, which are these traits that help govern the way we relate to other people. What would happen if all of our relationships, we allowed all of our relationships to possess these kinds of traits in our lives? In fact, Paul talks about to the people of Galatia, same concept. When he says, when you live in the spirit, this is what's going to happen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 26. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passion and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. These fruits are things that he also mentions to the people of Colossae. Or Colossae. One thing, once again, the thing that we cannot, one thing that we need to understand is these things cannot be produced by our own strength or willpower. It has to be the spirit. That's why we have to keep on feeding our spirits with the things of God. Verse 13, as we've read, listen to the New Living Translation version of that. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's about remembering what God has done. That's what motivates you. Remember the cross. Remember God's forgiveness. Remember God's love. Remember God's grace in your lives. That's how you're going to be able to forgive other people. That's how you're going to give grace to other people. Remember how God was patient with you. That's how you're going to be able to be patient with other people. Not only love with this grace that has been given to you, but he says live with gratitude. Let's close out with verse 15 and 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called to one body. And be thankful. Everyone say that word. Thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Everyone say that word. Thankfulness. In your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving, what? Thanks to God the Father through him. Not only should we love with this grace that we have received, but he says, live your life with gratitude. That's how God's goodness, the gospel, should govern our lives. The word or the phrase, be thankful, Listen to how the message translation, uh, translation translates it. And cultivate thankfulness. I thought that was good. Because you're not naturally thankful. We're self-centered people who feel entitled and we feel like we need more. To be able to see a thankful person, it is a person who has cultivated this kind of heart. Like, look at, I don't know how many of you know people who are in difficult situations, difficult family situations, difficult situations at work, 
difficult situation with their roommate, difficult situation in life group. When you look at a lot of these people, do you always hear complaining, pettiness, lack of forgiveness, lack of patience? But when was the last time you actually met people who are in these different situations that are very difficult and they're thankful? Not too many. Because you have to cultivate it. You have to develop it. It doesn't come easily. Like I said again, if some of these things came automatically, we don't even have to try. But to be thankful, you have to cultivate it. You have to watch your heart. You have to make sure you plow it and water it with grace and reminding yourself of God's mercy upon your life. So you can say, I am so thankful. Even though nothing is going my way, all I know is that I'm going to heaven. Even though everything feels like it's falling down, I know one day God's going to lift me up. This kind of thankfulness, gratitude, has to be cultivated and developed. Having a heart of thankfulness and gratitude is something that Paul mentions many times throughout the New Testament. And he even says, guess what? It's God's will for you. Some of you are like, Pastor, I don't know God's will. I go, you better read 1 Thessalonians chapter 15. You know what it says? Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. It says this. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is what? God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Some of you are like, what is God's will? I go, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. See you later. You want to know God's will? Do his will. Some of you are wanting to know all this stuff. Who am I going to marry? Where should I go? What job? Or what city am I going to? Like, why are you so concerned about things that you don't know about when the things that you do know about, you don't even do? Huh. Can I get a good amen to that? Why in the world? Like, I mean, okay, I'm just going to pretend, like, for a moment. Like, pretend you're God, all of us. And you, you revealed what your heart is. This is my will, my son. And you don't do it. Do you think, like, Oh, he's not doing what is already. I will show him what is not revealed to him because then he will obey. Are you kidding me? If you do not obey what he has shown you, there is no way he's going to show you what is unrevealed. It is a principle in life. He looks for faithfulness. He looks for consistency. And so if you can obey what is already revealed, so forgiving one another, loving one another, all these things that we know that it is the will of God and we are not doing it. And here we are wanting to know his will. He's probably thinking, why should I show you who you're going to marry? What city you should move? What job you should take? What, whatever it is about your future. Why should I show you this when you don't even do what you already know? So what does he do? He doesn't show you anything. So you get frustrated. Ah! Yeah, that's what it looks like, like a little baby. Like, ah! I know in Asia, it's really embarrassing when your kid goes out of control. Because it makes you look bad because it's all about saving face. But man, I have, to, I have to give it to this one parent. I was in the MTR yesterday, and this kid was out of control. I mean, literally, it shocked me. I, you know, I even had my, I'm like, what's going on? I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Putting on my Navy SEAL. I'm ready. It's going down. But this kid was going crazy. And the parents, like, 
I don't know what they said, but I, this is my translation, even though I don't know what they said. <laughs> they didn't yell back. They were very firm. And they said something in Chinese or sounded like Chinese. Something like, we're not going to something, something, and you can cry all you want. <laughs> I seriously wanted to go over to the parents that you are doing a great parenting job. Because, but you know, all the Asians, they're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what kind of parent are you? No, they're a good parent. Because they're trying to teach their kid, you cannot cry in public and get whatever you want, you spoiled little brat. That's good parenting. Now, if they're banging their head on the wall, then we will have to take some other measures. Now, please, don't misunderstand me. Like, parenting is not easy. And we had, my wife and I, we had instances where our kids went out of control. And you just got to love them. And sometimes we had to give in. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. Oftentimes we are like these little kids who are demanding God to do all this stuff. And God is God. And he's like, I don't have to do anything. Squat for you. I have revealed to you my will, which is to live gratefully and thankfully. Can you start there to say, God, thank you for life. I don't know about my future, but thank you for life. God, thank you that I'm saved that you have redeemed me. I don't know about my future wife, but God, I, I, I'm thankful that I am saved. God, I am just so thankful that you reached out to me and you died on the cross. I don't know about if my parents will ever come to Christ, but I thank you. This kind of heart has to be cultivated and it will help govern your life, the way you live, as well as it will guide you to things of heaven. May we live according to that way. That's why the one thing, once again, is living with God's holiness starts with knowing God's goodness. As we close, I want to give us some really practical things to maybe pray about and ask God to do in our lives this week. First of all, fight sin by focusing on what God has done for you. Like as you're trying to live in holiness, as you're trying to overcome this addiction, Focus on the right things by fighting sin as you look upon what Christ has done. Just the more you think about his goodness, the more it's going to want you to, you're going to hate sin. The more you think about how much he loves you, has forgiven you, has shown you grace and mercy, the more you're going to want to resist. So fight sin by focusing on what God has done. Second thing is this, feed your appetite with the things of God. Your spirit nature and your flesh nature are at war. Whichever you feed more is what's going to win. So learn to keep on abiding. Keep on reading the word. Keep on praying. Don't give up. Keep on feeding that spirit nature. Starve that flesh nature. The less you feed it, the less it have power over you. So look at what you feed this coming week. And lastly, find something to be grateful for every single day, will you? Before you go to sleep, or even midday, when you, your life is out of control and it's hectic, stressful, just pause for just even 30 seconds and find one thing that you could be grateful for. It's a habit you have to keep on doing. Some of you are like, Pastor, like there's nothing I could be thankful for. 
I think you do. Just you being alive and breathing. Give praise to God because he's given you life. May we respond in that way. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Can we just bow our heads for a moment? I know I shared a lot of different things. I just don't want our church to be filled with self-centered, externally driven, holy people. Because they don't do certain things that other people do. Or they do things that other people don't do. And so that makes them more righteous. None of us are righteous. I don't care whether you grew up in the church or you memorized the whole Bible. We all fall short because all you have to do is look at your heart and you realize some of those things from our old nature you still struggle with. I still struggle with. We're just not humble enough to admit those things and ask for help. So we put on a facade and think we're so righteous. But in our hearts, we're rotten to the core. And what we need more than anything else is a resuscitation of our hearts. God needs to come and resuscitate our hearts. And it comes when you just fix your eyes on the right things. Like Jesus and what he has done on the cross for you and for me. We don't deserve anything. And I'm going to say this. As you get older, you start realizing how more sinful you are. You just didn't notice it when you were younger. You realize how much more weak you are than strong. You start realizing how much you don't know than thinking when you were younger, you knew everything. Things become more gray rather than black or white. That's why decisions get harder when you get older. But I'm praying that in our church, that God will raise up Christ-centered people who are growing in humility because they all understand the goodness of God, the gospel. And out of that, as they look upon the cross, they're like, Jesus, you've given everything for me. And this is my motivation now. I want to live for you. Let's, let's Don't get it backwards. Trying to live for him so that he can love you. But because he first loved you, now you want to live your life for him because he's so good. I don't deserve anything, Lord. But you poured out your love. You lavished extravagantly your grace and your love to me. And so therefore, I want to fight sin. I want to stop doing some of those things. I want to overcome. I want to fight, not for myself, but I want to fight for your glory, for your honor. This is one of the greatest fight you will ever be in part of. May we do it with the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through daily abiding as we feed our spirit nature. Let's live with God's holiness and it has to start with God's goodness. So Father, I thank you for your goodness that sometimes we keep on forgetting we don't deserve any of this. And sometimes we have to pause and to reflect and think.
because we're such forgetful people. Thank you for rescuing us, redeeming us, saving us, being patient with us, forgiving us when we least deserve. Help us to focus on you. Set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. For our life is now hidden in Christ. Oh God, have mercy on us. We look to you. I want to give you about a couple minutes to just make your own personal commitment this week to really fix your eyes on him and to allow his goodness to guide you and to govern your life. May we live with this grace that we have received. May we live with this gratitude in our hearts. May it transform our relationship with people. May it transform the decisions we make this week. May it transform the things that we will do. Because God, you have been so good. So just for a minute or so, can you just make your own personal commitment? And then we'll just worship and then we'll close out this morning.